Um, it is time to get started. I am just so delightful to welcome Raquel Gates today. Uh, she is an associate professor of film and media at Columbia University. Her research focuses on blackness and popular culture with special attention to discourses of taste and quality. She is the author of Double Negative, The Black Image and Popular Culture from Duke University Press 2018. And she's currently working on her second book titled Hollywood Style and the Invention of Blackness. In 2020, she was named an Academy Film Scholar by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So uh, the title of her talk today is Reintroducing Melvin Van Peebles. And she uh, specifically said she was going to do something a little more uh, conversational or casual, you know, less uh, less the formal and just kind of jump right into it. So um, I pass it to you, Raquel. Thank you for joining us. Thank you uh, so much for, for having me. I'm really excited um, to, um, to talk about uh, the work that I did um, on this box set for Criterion um, and to um, and sort of to think a little bit, I think as well about sort of the role of scholars and kind of public facing capacities more generally, um, since this was a really kind of unique, unique experience for me. Um, so what I want to do is I'm going to share my screen. Um, here we go. And sort of kick it off. Hold on a second. Okay. So for everybody, everybody can see everything. <laughs> it's all it's like still this fear, how many ever years into the pandemic that like the, the tech won't work and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um this is I, I titled this talk reintroducing Melvin Van Peoples. Um, which is also the title of the introductory um essay that I wrote for the box set. So um in let me see, where can I start? Um so in about, I want to say like May of 2021, something like that, might have been earlier than that time sort of um, escapes me now. Um, I um, got contacted by um, some producers at the Criterion Collection because they were working on a box set of Melvin Van Peebles' work, and they asked me if I would be interested and coming on as a consulting producer. Um, I had done some projects with Criterion before, um, but most of those were on camera um, sort of interview type of things. Um, and I, I had definitely never done any kind of sort of consulting, uh, like any kind of producing work. Um, and in a minute, I'll come back to like what the consulting producer actually actually does. Um, but a couple of quick things about the box that also talk a little bit about Melvin Van Peebles um, a little bit more broadly. Um, so this was released in September 2021. It's a collection of five feature films. Van Peoples' early shorts, um, which had never been released before, um, and a number of other interviews and, and supplements, um, as well as several, four, five, five essays. Um, now, the thing that made this sort of unique is that, you know, usually criterion, um, like, people I know who've worked as a consulting producer for Criterion Projects, they've done it for like a single release. So like Michael Gillespie, who's an, another um, film scholar, he's been consulting producer for uh, Deep Cover and uh, for Criterion and for like Shaft, which is just got announced like two hours ago. Um, that's a single film. This was a total, like it was four features 
sorry, five features, um, because one of the features was Melvin's son, Mario Van Peebles uh, feature Badass, which is about the making of Sweet Sweetback's Badass song. Um, there was there was just a lot of stuff in, involved with these. Um, I don't have anything to do with like the sort of technical part. So everything was was remastered color adjusted sound adjust like that that wasn't sort of my 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 turf um but things like every film has to have have an essay every film has to have like supplementary features um those were all things um that were um sort of under my purview along with producer uh, kate elmore so um, it was it was a pretty labor intensive, um, you know, project, um, especially for somebody like me who had never done this type of thing before, even though I was I, I understood the material really well. Um, so um, it was uh, a really just kind of fascinating experience, um, but but a really sort of labor intensive one as well. Um, we knew when we were working on the box set that Melvin was not in the best of health um, and he had he had been ailing, um, you know, for the for the past year, um, perhaps even more than that. Um, but what we did not sort of expect um, was that he actually passed away a few days before the release of the box set, um, which was this sort of um, really strange um, uh you know, I don't know quite what the adjective is to describe it, but it's suddenly the box set, which was meant to be um, this 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 tribute um, to to his work, suddenly became sort of like like almost like an obituary, like a, but also part of his legacy, right? So I mean, the the, the timing was just um, really um, just the way that things sort of happened. Um, I wouldn't have anticipated. Um, I, I even saw someone asked me sort of randomly in another context. They said, well, did they did they time the release date after they found out? And I was like, no, it, like that's not how those those things work. The release date had been figured out, you know, months in in advance of that. Um, so it was just sort of one of those one of those things that um, that happened. Um, and so I, I mentioned that kind of timing because um, it. It added a really, I mean, even working on it, you know, knowing that he was ill, um, I very much just kept thinking that I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that this like did, did him justice because I knew that he, he wasn't in a place where he was going to be doing like interviews about the box set. Um, and I just, I, I was, I felt really committed to, to like getting it right, whatever, whatever that meant in, in terms of my participation. Uh, so a little bit about Melvin Van Peebles. Um, Filmmaker, actor, author, playwright, composer. Um, most people, if, if they know Melvin Van Peebles, um, they know him for his 1971 independent feature, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, um, which um, is a, a film about a, a young man who is a sex worker who sort of becomes a reluctant uh, revolutionary um, partly through the act of um, killing a white cop as he's defending another young black man. Um, the film also features like explicit sex scenes, not simulated, like actual sex. Um, it was rated X. Melvin Matt Peebles did a lot of really um, sort of inventive things with that film um, in front of the camera, but also behind the camera. Um, he used like non-union labor. Um, he had, had a basically an all sort of like um, an incredibly diverse cast. Um, uh, sorry, obviously a diverse cast, but incredibly diverse crew. Um, and a lot of people um, and some some um, kind of like um, memorials um, that that I was sort of part of after this, people would mention that they got their start in the film industry, like on the set of this film, because they could not break into the film industry in any other kind of way. Um, 
Sweetback sort of inadvertently kicks off the black exploitation um, genre. At least that's sort of how it's always been credited. That's not the film that Melvin Van Peebles made. Like he wasn't making an exploitation film, um, but the film does so well at the box office that it sort of sends this signal um, to to Hollywood studios that um, black audiences like they go to see movies, which which Hollywood knows, but they always conveniently kind of forget. Um, but the, the the success of the film with such a small budget outside of the studio system um, prompts Hollywood to really, um, at least temporarily sort of invest in black films and black audiences. Um, all of his films have an explicitly like pro-black revolutionary sentiment um, articulated in different ways across, across his work. Um, but always very much present. Um, and across all of his sort of film work, he has a lot of sort of different stylistic things in Story of a Three-Day Pass. He does lots of kind of gestures toward French New Wave. Um, Sweetback has a really kind of experimental aesthetic. Um, Watermelon Man um, looks, it's his only studio film. It looks very much like a, it opens, it kind of looks like a TV sitcom. Um, some of that is by his design. Some of it is not. It's just, you know, also dependent on who was sort of assigned to work on that film by uh, Columbia Pictures. Um, Don't Play as Cheap is a is a is a filmed stage play. So it has a and it's a musical. Um, so it, one of the things that I um, sort of came to this project with was this feeling that you have this man who um, was had such an incredible, like varied <laughs> approach to, to storytelling. Um, and in addition to being a director, like he, he also stars in Sweetback, like he's an actor. Um, he's a, he's a novelist. He's, he's a playwright. Um, he's a composer. Um, and I, I felt that those were the things that I really wanted to make sure um, were sort of highlighted um, as opposed, not as opposed to, in addition to thinking of him as, like a black revolutionary who made Sweetback, which he was, I wanted to also talk about all of these other things as well. So these are um, the, the four Van Peoples um, films that were, um, that, that are featured on the box set. And, and they run a really kind of small span um, from, you know, Story of a Three Day Pass is 1968, Watermelon Man is 1970. Sweetback is 71, Don't Play As Cheap is 72. This is not the extent of Melvin Van Peoples sort of film work. Um, you know, he obviously, he, he, he kept making films like for, for a long time um, and documentaries and all kinds of other things, right? And he, he, he has a book about like financial investment on Wall Street. Like there's, like, it, it, he had a band, like there's just, there, he did a whole lot of things. Um, I was brought into the project as consulting producer when some, like a lot of these decisions had already been made. So the, the films that were selected I wasn't I wasn't part of the project yet when when that decision got got made. Um, and I, I mentioned that to say that, you know, part of uh, I felt my kind of work as as a scholar coming in was to try to sort of offer an overarching narrative and a framework um, to sort of present on the box set. Um, and so with the four films, um, you know, the the kind of underlying message that I wanted to kind of push was that this is like a micro capsule. This is like, you know, a capsule collection um, of his work that gives us a glimpse into all of these sort of things that he he was able to do so well, although this is not obviously sort of an exhaustive um, you know, an exhaustive collection. Um, okay, so some of the um, considerations and also the challenges um, that I kind of uh, discovered once we started working on this. Um, one, we did this um, 
I will say during COVID, we're not out of COVID, right? Um, but during like peak COVID, um, and that posed a lot of challenges for, for filming. Um, there were so many um, challenges, but also I think um, benefits as well. Um, some of the interviews were in person. So for instance, his son Mario um, has an interview um, in the box set and uh, that was in person with um, journalist Elvis Mitchell. Um, other people um, like Warrington Hutland, for instance, who's a, a, a director and producer, um, Warrington was like, yeah, I'm not going indoors any, <laughs> anywhere. You must, I think I'm not doing, you know, as, as committed as he was, he's like, we, I'm only shooting remotely, right? Of which, which makes complete sense. Um, so his conversation with Nelson George um, was, was shot um, remotely. Th that brought up all kinds of sort of challenges, like trying to figure out how you shoot things remotely and still have it sort of be engaging. Um, uh, just basic tech difficulties um, were always kind of problems, you know, shooting remotely. But the benefit of that was that um, Criterion typically shoots like their stuff like in house, like you in the Criterion office or maybe in a studio, everything in person. Um, but during COVID, there was so much remote shooting happening that, for instance, um, there's a scholars panel on the Sweetback disc which is our, our scholars, Amy Ungiri, uh, Gerald Butters, and Novotny Lawrence, who all live in different states. But because remote shooting was a thing, um, we were able to like have them be part of, of the disc. Um, it's my probably like my favorite supplement um, in, in the box set. Um, but had we not been in COVID times, I like I don't think um, I don't know that there would have been a budget to fly them in. I don't know if they would have been able to fly in on their own dime, that type of thing. Right. So in, in a weird way, like that was a sort of a benefit that came out of um, doing this during COVID. Um, another sort of <clears throat> consideration um, was my perspective as a scholar um, that, you know, I wanted to bring something to this project um, that was different than, um, you know, maybe what they would have with without me. Um, what that turned out to be was this sort of meta reflection on not just like what Melvin Van Peoples did, but on the idea of Melvin Van Peoples himself. Um, and that was that was coming out in a whole lot of places, uh, because one of the things that's pretty sort of awesome about Melvin Van Peoples, but is really, really sort of challenging in some ways is that, you know, Melvin Van Peoples was such a storyteller um, and a storyteller in his film work, but also like in his interviews. Um, and you, you know, you'd start talking to people and you start hearing like, kind of like, like versions of the same story that were always just like slightly different. Right. Um, I didn't really want to get into, into the weeds too much. Um, like trying to figure out what was like true, um, or, you know, or what was like hundred percent accurate. Um, and so I really wanted to, um, figure out a way that, whatever kind of inconsistencies we ran into um, were presented as sort of part of his own process of image creation, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, like a, a, a thing to be criticized. Um, another, um, so one of the things I really wanted to do, and I'll just kind of skipping down a little bit. Um, I was, I really wanted this to be more than just like idol worship. I really wanted to engage with, his work um, because of how brilliant I think it, it, it is. I didn't want the box set to just be a whole lot of people kind of regurgitating um, the same like stories that you've heard a million times about Melvin Van Peoples or saying that the same types of things. Um, I
I think it switched to another mic, maybe. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Yep. Sorry about that. Um, my sound just randomly switched to something, another source, and I have no idea why that is. Very bizarre. Okay. Sorry. Let's go back to where we were. Um, okay. Play from current slide. All right. Uh, okay. Um, so I was saying um, that I really I wanted to sort of do critical analysis of his work um, and uh, attend to it in all of his forms. So I was really insistent on in the spaces that I could control, which were not was not like the bulk of the box set, but it, where I had some modicum of, of creative control, I wanted scholars to be involved. So that was like there was a scholars panel. All of the essays for the films were written by film scholars um, as, a, as opposed to like journalists, for instance, who I thought would have done a really great job. But I, there was a different kind of thing um, that, that, that I wanted and was hoping to sort of uh, bring out the challenge with that, however, is that writing for an academic audience is not the same as writing for a Criterion's audience and, and bringing in top-notch scholars who think so um, in such complex, nuanced ways, um, like sometimes getting that to translate into sort of like an essay that was going to be digestible by a general audience um, was was just it was just a challenge and it was I, I contributed to essays as well like it was it was it was a challenge uh, for for me too um, you know we had lots of conversations about sort of like how much language is too jargony um, which concept is referring to something that needs more explanation how many things can we assume that the audience, uh, you know, will sort of know coming into it. Do we need to explain what black exploitation? I mean, just it's you know, there was a lot of a, a lot of that, right? Um, um, come to that one last. Um, at the time that we were doing this, this was also in 2020. Um, this was um, sort of like right in the right just after. Um, like the George Floyd protests. This was just after all of those streaming services were getting into all kinds of issues around um, like their racist programming. And there was just like a heightened attention on um, sort of rethinking old media. And so for me, one of the one of the big things was like, oh, but we have Sweetback, right? We have Sweetback, which is which is a film that has explicit sex scenes that literally opens with a 13 year old boy played by Melvin's son, Mario, having simulated sex with a grown woman, right? Like it, it's, what what do we do about that? We can't, you know, I, I was sort of insistent on in this moment, we can't just like put, we, we can't just have the film and not say anything, right? We have to think about how we sort of contextualize what we say about that, you know, what are, what are we um, sort of doing? So that was another thing that was sort of like on my mind as, as we worked on this. Um, I also, because Melvin was not in um, great health, um, he he wasn't consulting um, like with us directly about like what was happening with with the box set, but his son Mario was. Mario was his essentially his representative and kind you know and and had um, you know obviously like tons of creative input. Um, for me, that meant that there was a, a, a bit of a, a balance because the way that we tend to sort of like deal with texts and films as scholars is usually like, we don't meet filmmakers. You know what I mean? We're not talking to their sons. We're not like, we're not screening things with like, 
some like with Melvin's great granddaughter in the room, like that's not like how we, you know, we're, we're scholars. Like we sit in a room with books and a screen and we, you know, we, we do our work. Um, so for me, um, Mario's involvement was just kind of this constant reminder that um, we were dealing with the work of a, of a real life person um, and that this was, this was part of his legacy. And so, um, you know, there, we, like for me, it was, there, that, that had to always sort of be in, in focus um, as we were um, sort of, you know, moving on, um, moving on through the, through the, through the project. The other thing that was also happening, um, and I'm going to stop sharing um, so I can share something else. Um, one second. Just have this ready to go. Okay. Um, right before um, I started working on this project, um, Criterion had actually come under, um, there, there had been a big, I'm just pulling it up so you all can see what this looks like. The New York Times had done this big piece um, about lack of diversity in the Criterion collection. Um, and it, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a very big deal <laughs> when this happened. Um, you know, I'm just kind of scrolling so you get a sense of what it, what it looks like. Um, so this was also the sort of background, the backdrop um, of the, kind of the discourse around things. Now, what's interesting is, um, you know, Criterion, to my understanding, I don't, you know, like I don't work there, uh, but to my understanding, Criterion had had been actually um, kind of dealing with this like internally and already thinking about their programming and some other things. Um, and then this story kind of hit. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of just mentioning that that context because you know, at least for me at the time, I felt that it, it put our project, um, and, and this happened as well when it got released in sort of this um, interesting, um, uh, sorry, um, this interesting sort of position, sorry, messing with my screen again, um, where I, I didn't want it to come off as if this this box that was in response to the criticism about diversity, um, you know, because for me, it felt like, um, I, I mean, I think we should always be having conversations about sort of diversifying canons and catalogs and things like that. Um, but, you know, as somebody who was working on this um, and who knew how long this had been in the works and sort of the amount of effort and like labor and love that was going into it um, there, you know, for me, I had a, a sort of um, a concern, a question um, about if the work was going to be at all um, sort of undermined, um, if it was seen as, um, uh, being a response to something, right? Um, which which it wasn't. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the last thing is I, I was really, you know, when you're working with so many people, including Mario, but also like with with the exception of the scholars, I mean, the people who are interviewed on in, in the supplements, they're, they're people who like know and love Melvin like dearly. Um, and what I was trying to do was avoid having it just be like hero worship, right? Um, and actually have some kind of critical, critical engagement. Um, and you see this, but at the same time, you don't want to take that away because it's, it's, you know, people really, um, have had and have such an affection and a, and a connection, um, for him that you don't also want to remove that and make it sort of cold and, and, and sterile. And I think walking that balance, um, was a little, for me, a little, uh, challenging at times, um, but, but also really, um, kind of worth it. So I wanted to show this clip, which is, um, a segment of an interview, uh, between journalist uh, and cultural critic and filmmaker Nelson George and producer director Warrington Hutland um, to give you a sense of like some of the things that I was just mentioning. Um, so, they, you know, like um, 
shot on Zoom, um, uh, which, you know, again, like the kind of technical challenges were 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 a lot uh, <laughs> that that day. Um, we had like issues with the sound and like, did it up, like luckily got it all together. Um, and then also you have Nelson George, who's someone who had, had known Melvin Van Peebles for over 40 years. You have some you have Warrington Hudland, who um, considers himself to be, you know, like Melvin's like other son is, you know, how he kind of, you know, he thinks of Mario as his brother. Um, and I really just sort of love the the energy between the two of them. Um, so I wanted to show you this. Um, and let me know if there's an issue and you can't hear it or something. In the industry that either they scare you off or they buy you off. And yeah. Melvin bad people, you can buy them, nor could you scare. That ability to uh, don't give a fuck. And be very comfortable with not am I not giving a fuckness, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so, and, and every encounter I've had with him over, oh God, the last forty years now, whatever, he's always been a singular individual, always himself. Absolutely, absolutely. I was the co-founder of the Acapulco Black Film Festival, and one of the things we did one year, we honored Milk Fan People as, as a trailblazer, and we had all this press there. And we were going to present Melvin the award. So we did that. And then we had the, the press gaggle. And, and one guy, I remember, he was a French critic. He said, uh, he says, Mr. Van Peoples, Mr. Van Peoples, is, I need to ask you one question. I want to know here among everybody, what is the one message of your cinema? What is the one message? I said, wow, that's a good question. So all the filmmakers are going to be like, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad somebody asked that question. So Melvin, takes a cigarette out of his mouth and says, niggas win. And I jumped my feet screaming, and that is it. That is his message. And that's why he touches me so deeply. Niggas win. Because America says, niggas die. And Melvin says, no, niggas win. In the industry that... Okay, so... Um, you haven't been in a conversation with Melvin until he's poked you in the chest. Back up a little bit. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so kind of working with all of, all of this stuff, um, you know, I, it's, it's, I felt like um, if I'm kind of analogizing it to like academic writing, I felt at times like sort of in this project that I was a little bit of an undergrad and like I had a topic, but I hadn't come up with a thesis yet. Like I didn't have an argument. And that, and for me, um, it, I like just the way that I work on anything is like I need to have like in my mind what the theoretical framework is in order to know what I'm what I'm doing. Otherwise, it makes I, I just like it makes everything harder. Um, it's like one of the things that I, I was sort of tasked with doing um, was I wrote the introductory essay um, for for the box set. And, um, you know, it's weird. It, a box set is really it's, it's very much like an academic book where um you're thinking of it as as the author, producer, whatever, as this one solo text. But in reality, like people don't read all of your book. Like maybe they read the introduction and one chapter that's like relevant to their research. Maybe they skim it. Maybe they read a section. Um, but for me, I kept thinking of the introduction um, and the introductory essay as like, this is going to be the thing that sort of sets up and kind of frames um, the box set, but also like this, this whatever idea it is um, that I'm trying to, you know, hit on. Um, and so there was a, there was an interview um, that um, journalist uh, Elvis Mitchell did um, with Melvin's son, Mario, um, that I'm going to show you right now. And I just thought it was so perfect um, in terms of an, art, an articulation of Melvin Van Peebles sort of politics. Um, 
and it's the thing that sort of inspired um, the uh, the introduction. So let me play this. You haven't been in a conversation, Melvin, until he's poked you in the chest. Right. And he's done this to you. Right. Either literally or figuratively. Yeah. He's always doing that. You think of three-day pass, watermelon man. Maybe to a lesser degree, don't play as cheap, but still something there too. And of course, Sweetback. And they're all films that will go like that. Yeah. He gets the joke of life. And I think there's a genuine quality about him that likes to observe people, likes to poke them a little bit, likes to make them think a little bit, likes to challenge them a little bit to stretch the parameters. So I, um, I was, um, I was there when they were recording this. And I, I remember, um, when Elvis was like, he did that. I was like, I just started like kind of furiously scribbling, but like quietly because they were recording. Um, and that was, that was kind of my prompt, um, for how I sort of understand, um, Melvin Van Peebles works. So I just wanted to read, it's not terribly long, just the, the, the introduction that I, that I wrote for the box set, um, which is titled reintroducing Melvin Van Peebles. I'm an asshole today. That was how Melvin Van Peoples greeted me when I arrived at his Manhattan apartment in February 2013 to interview him for an essay that I was writing about his film Watermelon Man. As I exited the elevator into the hallway, he was waiting outside his door, giving me the impression of someone standing guard, controlling access to his home, but also to himself. Just today, I replied, feeling a bit shaky about how this response would land with the renowned director but also sensing that his opening statement was a provocation aimed at eliciting a response and therefore not unlike much of his artistry. There was a brief pause, then his follow-up, you're probably scared of me now, said with the smallest glimmer of a smirk. It confirmed for me that I should interpret this as an invitation of sorts to participate in a performance on both sides. Emboldened just slightly, I responded, sir, I'm from Chicago. Assholes don't scare me. And then as if I had correctly guessed the password to some elite club, the legendary Melvin Van Peoples opened the door and gestured for me to enter. I want to think that I somehow earned Van Peoples respect in that short exchange by proving that I could handle whatever he was dishing out, but that would be flattering myself. Instead, what has lingered with me over the years and remains at the forefront of my mind as I write this introduction is the degree to which every element of my initial meeting with him was part of a curated process of myth-making. Had he begun our interview as the generous and not exactly nice, but thoroughly kind filmmaker that he revealed himself to be over the course of our two hour conversation, I might have left his apartment without a good story and without an opening for this essay. And there's more, but I'm going to just sort of like leave that to this to the side, um, because that's sort of how I understood um, everything that we were sort of doing at that point um, in in the box set. Okay. Um, a little bit of background um, about the box set and about just sort of like how stuff works at Criterion. Um, um, so there's Peter Becker, who's the Criterion president. Um, Ashley Clark is the curatorial director, and he's the person who's in charge essentially of like proposing what projects um, Criterion is going to be releasing, um, um, whether on sort of like, you know, in terms of their, their, their Blu-ray and DVD collection. Kim Hendrickson is the executive producer. Kate Elmore was the producer who, who worked on um, the box set. So that's the person who I was sort of like partnered with um, for this process. 
And then there's the consulting producer, that's me. Um, and then, of course, Mara Van Peoples, um, who um, was sort of the representative for Melvin in this process. So these were all of the people who um, were sort of involved um, uh, to, to varying degrees, but um, like fairly regularly um, in this. So what does a consulting producer uh, do? So the consulting producer role is still, it's interesting. It's, it's like, it's not every release has a consulting producer, but some releases have consulting producers. Um, and you, you know, some people do more than others. It's sort of up to the, the person how much they want to take on. Um, but usually um, they're an expert in the subject matter related to the release. So usually scholars have been asked to be consulting producers um, on various things. Um, they contribute ideas, formulating new content. They select contributors, conduct interviews, and they shape the overall presentation of the release. And this is just a slide because I wanted you to see like sub, like the the supplements um, that that we worked on, um, you know, for for the box set, um, you can see, for instance, um, um, the the conversations. Um, I wish I could highlight, but I can't. Um, the scholars Amy Ungiri and, and Gerald Butters and Navani Lawrence. Um, the 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 essays um, by the scholars who aren't listed here. Um, but those are all things that I had sort of direct um, input into, as well as some of the selections of the of the supplementary materials. Um, Overall, like the idea of trying to tell a story um, is what the box set is sort of aimed at. So on this box set, I was consulting producer, but I ended up also um, writing the introductory essay. I, I also wrote the essay um, on Watermelon Man. Um, and, and part of that was because I had already written an essay on Watermelon Man for Film Quarterly, which came out in like 2014 or something like that. I had written an essay on Watermelon Man. I had presented Watermelon Man at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, I had recorded something for Criterion that hadn't aired about Watermelon Man. So I partly, you know, my own ego was like, this is this is my turf. I'm going to stake it out. I, this also happened right after um, some some guy plagiarized my my film quarterly essay and wrote put it and put it on medium and it got all of this traction and went viral. Um, and and he, he took it down when I emailed him and threatened him. Um, but that's a whole other story. But I felt very. Um, I, I like I felt very uh like territorial I guess about watermelon man but to be honest the other reason um that I wanted to um write uh the essay on watermelon man is because we had a really tight turnaround um and I was trying to buy time for the other writers because you 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 know how like academics are and they're not always really great with deadlines um and I kept trying to explain to the scholars Um, okay. I think we're back. Yes. Sorry guys. I have no idea why it's doing that. Um, <laughs> very bizarre. Um, so anyway, um, as I was saying, like just academics aren't always the best about deadlines. And so, um, I was, I just, I just knew people were going to be running late. Cause that's like the thing that happens. And in my mind, I thought I've already written so much about Watermelon Man. Like, I'll just copy and paste it, right? We'll get permission from Phil Quarterly. I can turn my essay in first while it's off being sort of like copy edit. Like, then the other people have some time. That's not exactly what happened because Criterion had a lot of edits and, and you know, they wanted the, the essay to sort of work for their audience, you know, which I, I, I wouldn't have sort of anticipated. Um, but, you know, um, that was sort of what happened. Um, my own kind of history, just quickly, um, 
I had done a lot of work on on Watermelon Man at a point when I thought that the film was going to be part of my first book. And then um, like that, I, I cut that out, but I had done like archival research um, out in LA on the film. I had interviewed Melvin Peoples in 2013, which is a story I'll save. We can talk about in the Q and A. That was that was that was a trip um, and one of those very New York uh, type of things. Um, I had then the film quarterly piece came out in 2014, 2018. I did an intro at BAM 2020. Um, Criterion asked me to do um, like a video introduction to the film. Um, and then that's up on their, their, their website, on their channel. And then in 2021 is when um, the essential films uh, came out. Um, so that's sort of my history there. Um, in terms of doing like kind of public facing stuff, um, I'm always trying to sort of like build some kind of bridge between sort of what we do as film study scholars and then like film, the film appreciation crowd. Um, and that's, that's how I've approached other things I've done. And that was very much on my mind when I was, um, when I was working on this. Um, so for me, all of these, op like every, every time you get an opportunity to do something like this, it, to me, it's always an invitation. Um, uh, it's an invitation for the audience to, to think more rigorously, um, and in different ways about, um, about film. Um, I was like, I was really insistent that we talk in the essays about aesthetics. Um, I, I was like, you know, I, I want people who can talk about editing and cinematography and sort of, um, all of the things that, 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 that make these films really brilliant and not just talk about plot um, because I thought that was a, that would be a benefit to the Criterion audience. Um, I also, you know, viewed it as an opportunity to um, to the extent that I could give scholars who are doing such brilliant work a wider platform to talk about, you know, what they're doing. I mean, on, on the on the scholars panel, I mean, Amy Ongeri has such brilliant things to say about like blackness and black masculinity and adolescence and like in the seventies. And, and, and I was, I was just delighted um, to, to sort of just be able to provide like her and the other scholars a space to just like, to just go and to just talk um, and, um, and, and to hopefully, um, you know, sort of reach audiences beyond, um, you know, kind of our typical sort of academic um, audience. So um uh, I also wanted to kind of mention my my history with Criterion um, to, to kind of frame <laughs> what what this project was. Uh, I've, I've, I didn't realize how much stuff I'd quite done with them until until I had to list it all out on this slide. Um, but in general, I've 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 done like interviews. So. I've been on camera um, where I have like a really specific interview segment that I'm asked to kind of speak to, right? Um, uh, for Bamboozled, it was like the history of like minstrelsy and in, in, in film. Um, I've like the, the Watermelon Man thing was specifically about that film. Um, been in a Jesus, sorry. One more second. Let me get this fixed. No, you're, you're back now. You just cut out for a second there. Hopefully it won't keep doing that. I have no idea why. Um, all right. Okay. Um, but all that to say, this whole idea of how you produce a project um, was completely different for me and especially dealing with, um, you know, like for instance, with the scholars writing the essays, like I had ideas about what I wanted them to emphasize in the films, but at the, at the end of the day, you bring them on be because they're brilliant and because they're gonna bring some new insights. Um, and so that was um, like a lot of that was, was just stuff I wasn't, 
I had never done before in any kind of capacity. Um, like even sort of in my academic work, I haven't edited an anthology. I mean, I've, I've done like a, you know, a collection for, for a journal, but, but, but um, nothing quite like this. Right. Um, and so this was, um, you know, rather, rather new work. The good thing was I had done enough stuff with Criterion that I had a sense of how things kind of worked overall um, and a sense of sort of the dynamics there and um, sort of who works on what and how, you know, kind of to a certain degree, how the sausage gets made, um, which I thought was was helpful coming in, into this project. Okay. Just in the interest of time, I'll skip a little bit. Um, okay. So my approach for the box set um, was that you're dealing with a director who's not an unknown director exactly, right? Like the, the people, my understanding was that the people who were going to purchase this box, this box set, which is like 80 or $90 or something, you know, something like that. They're going to be people who already like Melvin Van Peebles. They're not going to be like, oh, I don't know who this is. Let me like drop a hundred dollars on this. So the challenge for me was, what are we bringing that is new? What, how do you entice somebody who already owns maybe two of the DVDs in the set that they should buy this one, right? And it's not going to be just the kind of cinephile thing of like, well, it's it's like re re restored and remastered, like, you know? So for me, it was the idea of reintroducing him. It's taking the stuff that you already know and teaching you some things that you don't already know or reframing things, for instance. So my idea was that each film that I kept imagining had this visual of Melvin as a diamond <laughs> and that we were going to just kind of keep refracting and turning the diamond so that you got a different sort of facet of him, depending on which way you looked. Right. Um, so every film was about a different sort of facet of, of, of who he was. There's a really heavy emphasis, as I mentioned, on sort of scholarly input for context and critical analysis. Um, I also, there was this interesting um, thing that I felt, which was, I wanted to situate Melvin Matt Peoples within Black film, um, but I also wanted to talk about him within all of these other contexts. But I didn't want the other contexts to come at the cost of talking about him in Black film, which is which is a thing um, that 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 can happen, right? That you start saying he's not a Black film director, he's really an indie director. I, I wanted to keep insisting on this kind of both and type of thing. Um, and a lot of that had to do with, a lot of that I think was accomplished um, by choosing the right essay writers, quite quite frankly. Um, so I wanted to think about his impact on independent cinema, like his conversations that he was having, um, like that his work is in with like global cinema. Um, those were things that were really important to me. Um, and I, I kind of alluded to this, but I really wanted to embrace any inconsistencies as, as part of his own kind of process of self-creation. Self um, so just, uh, you know, some of the people who, who wrote, I wrote the, the intro, Allison Fields wrote the essay for Story of the Three Day Pass. Um, I wrote the essay on Watermelon Man. Michael Gillespie wrote for Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song. And then Lisa Thompson, who is um, a film and theater scholar, wrote uh, the essay for Don't Play Us Cheap, which was pretty perfect. The Scholars Conversation, I already mentioned, Amy Ongiri, Gerald Butters, and Abotney Lawrence. So I'm keeping a close eye on my time, by the way. Um, one of the things I really, like I, I mentioned this before, but I really wanted to emphasize like the aesthetics, like Story of a Three Day Pass um, is, you know, about a French, uh, this, sorry, a, a black man, um, a black GI who like is on, you know, his three day pass and he falls in love with his white French woman. Um, and you can talk about the plot, like which 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 Allie does in her essay, but I, like the aesthetics of it are so striking and had, had been under discussed. Um, and I wanted to, to just kind of bring that out to the extent that I could. So um, like this, I mean, we talk about 
like Spike Lee and that double dolly shot that he does. Right. But like this is Melvin Van Peebles doing it in 1968, I think, to, to, to great effect. And in her essay, I mean, she does such a beautiful job of talking about kind of the use of mirrors and, and doubling. Um, she also, because she's a film historian and like, you know, was digging in the archives was, I mean, she pulled up some really fascinating stuff about kind of Melvin's early career in France that, uh, you know, we, we that some of it like sort of directly contradicted some of the lore, but was actually like, it, it was more interesting in, in, in a way, you know, the some of the timelines, I think that like the, the, um, that I and like some of the folks at Criterion had in our head about like kind of the process of, you know, him going to France and then he wrote this novel and then he made this based on the novel and Allie was kind of pulling out stuff and she's like, no, it kind of looks like he he told them he had a novel and he used that to get money for the film. And then he wrote, I mean, it, it, you know, that was, that's kind of the beauty of like, when you have like somebody who knows how to like dig in the archives, you know, working, working on your stuff, uh, which was, which I thought was really awesome. Um, Let's see, where are we? Um, sorry. Um, one of the things like in Watermelon Man, which um, that I thought was really interesting um, was sort of the use of um, like casting and kind of this like meta consideration of um, like the representations of blackness in old Hollywood. Um, so this is a scene in which the main character um, who is in whiteface, um, sorry, Watermelon Man's about a white bigot who like wakes up and finds out he's he's black um but this is while he's still white um and he encounters um uh like a waiter played by mantan moreland who um was known for um sort of like 40s comedies but is also this 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 actor who has been um kind of widely sort of um criticized for for like being like buffoonish on camera um so um there's this and then i'll kind of move on Come on, Joe. Hey, Joe, come on, come on, come on. Morning, Mr. Gerber. Ah, morning, Joe. How goes it? Oh, okay. Any rioting in the neighborhood last night? Uh, I don't see any broken windows. Uh, <laughs> what's the matter? This place ain't good enough to, to loot. The usual, Mr. Gerber. Oh, yes, uh, but make mine a double. I'm feeling a bit under par this morning. Hmm? Oh, <laughs> one double Polynesian health juice. Coming up. <laughs> hey, uh, no offense about that, uh, that looting remark, you know? Oh, no, Mr. Gerber. <laughs> I know you don't go for that sort of thing. <laughs> no, okay. And of course, if you did, <laughs> it'd be very hard for the police to identify you. I mean, an hour later. 
All you cats look alike. <laughs> oh, the sky's looking all busy. Here's to your help. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Gerben. So I, I've always been really fascinated with this scene. <clears throat> I won't go uh, into too much depth about it here, um, but it's, you know, I, I was struck by it when I first saw it and when I interviewed Melvin Van Peoples um, and I asked him about like, why did you cast Mantan Moreland? Um, and, you know, and he, he said, um, I just, I thought he never got a fair shot. And I, I liked this idea of kind of taking this actor who had been really just kind of widely criticized um, for like working with, you know, he didn't write these parts. Um, I liked the idea of using him as, as like a tool to critique racism um, in this film, you know, um, and, and, and using the stereotype sort of against, um, a, against the racism of Hollywood. Um, I'm gonna keep going just because I wanna make sure that I get to, there's a last I was going to mention like one of the things um, that that I had mentioned before I was really worried about was like sweep back um, and how do we deal with that? And we, we, we weren't in a position to like ask Melvin to talk about it. Um, I, I didn't think it was really appropriate to kind of ask Mario to, to talk about like how he felt filming that. It's, you know, I don't know. Um, but what we did do, um, and, and Kate Elmore found this, and I thought it was a pretty brilliant and elegant way to sort of address it, is we found um, this episode from, I think it's 1972 TV program called Black Journal, where um, various critics and journalists are having a debate about um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and Melvin Van Peoples is weighing in on it as well. Um, and um, and this issue gets brought up there, um, talking about the sex and is it exploitation, you know, or sort of or, or, or what is it? Um, and I thought that it was just kind of like the perfect way um, to address a really I mean, controversial isn't even like the word for it, like to, to address this this scene, um, but also not sort of reanimate it in a way that was going to overdetermine. Um, sort of the discourse around um, around the, the box set as a, as a whole. Um, so, and this is up like it's on the it's on the box set. It's on the Criterion Channel. It's I probably shouldn't say so. It's on YouTube if you if you if you want to find it that way. Um, it's called uh, "Is Sweet Back Sweet." Um, that's the name of the segment, which is really great. Um, I just in the last like kind of minute, I just wanted to mention that you know to come to this point, which was. Um, I said at the beginning, I was, I was really like attentive to this idea. Like this is, this is like a real person. Um, and we are sort of creating this, this testament to his legacy. And part of that, um, involves, you know, Mario. Um, and, um, there, when we were, um, there's the Melvin's short films. This one is, um, this is a little clip from a film called sunlight. And Mario came in, they had just kind of like um, re redone it and he was coming in to see it. And Mario came into the Criterion office with his with his four-year-old um, granddaughter. Um, and we were kind of sitting like in the editing booth together and we're, we're watching this. Um, I'll just show you this clip, um, super short. And then we, we have this and like Mario turns to his granddaughter. He's like, look, that's your grandfather when he was a baby. And like, you know, just this kind of moment where, you know, it, it really kind of hit home, at least for me, um, that this this is art. And, you know, these are these are films and these are texts. But like this is also like these are documents of their of their family and their and their family's lives um, as well. Um, you know, the relationship between Mario and Melvin is so special. Um, and uh, I, I think at least that we did a really good job of, of trying to find um, this way to, to, um, 
to to bring that out uh, because Mario is also a filmmaker in his own right. Um, he's a filmmaker. He's his father's son. He's sort of interested in protecting his father's legacy. Um, uh, but he's also a professional peer, you know. Um, and so this is just the last thing I'll show. And then we can chat um, because I think this clip um, is really just, just kind of speaks to their relationship and, and the kind of warmth that that I was hoping um, would kind of permeate the, the whole box set. My dad sat down with me and he said, you were able to negotiate things that I wouldn't have been able to negotiate. You know, he would have turned the table over a lot. He didn't have the luxury of being more diplomatic. You know, I think I've had the luxury because of the Melvins, because of the Poitiers, because of the Michauds. And he said, however, I never dreamed. He said, to dream that your son might be in the same, want to be in the same business as you, that's a father's dream, that you'd wind up playing me in a movie. This bizarre, way beyond my wildest dreams. We're talking about all these things. I wonder if it's one day for you, it's Sweetback, and another day for you, it's Watermelon Man, because there's so much work and it encompasses so much. I really am curious if any of these, and one of these is kind of a touchstone for you, you go back to it, you say, huh? Sweetback, I remember because I was there as a kid on the set, and it was so interesting to play my dad in Badass. It was a little bit like psychotherapy on celluloid for me. I can't divorce seeing the movie Sweetback from my experiences seeing it and watching what he went through to make it, and then even more, what he went through to sell it. He was able to do, when you understand it in context, things that seemed totally impossible to do. And you see whole books where they talk about independent cinema, and they leave Melvin Van Peebles out. And yet Sweetback is the top-grossing independent hit of all time. And so if we let our history be defined by his story, it will be his story and not our story. And I, and I think Melvin was never shy about co-opting that back and saying, you know what, it's our story. And that's part of what I've, I've enjoyed doing as his son, is making sure that, that, that people know. And it's not just for my dad or to get credit for him or anything. He's not interested in that. It's that if we know he did it, then we know we did it, and we know we can do it. And that's the power. He told me once, he said, son, you know a bumblebee is not aerodynamically sound, so it shouldn't be able to fly because it's not aerodynamically sound. Now, birds are aerodynamically sound. They have you know, wings and they can float. But a bumblebee looks like a, you know, a flying turd, but it's black and yellow. But a bumblebee doesn't know anything about aerodynamics, so it flies anyway. That's Melvin. So I'm going to um, stop the presentation there um, and open it up for conversation. Wow, well, thank you, Raquel. That was a great clip to end with. Um, that was terrific. Um, I'm going to start. Uh, I see we have two questions in Q&A, and we can open up to some of our people uh, in the room with us, too. Um, you talked about not fact-checking the, the stories uh, towards the beginning of your presentation that, that you, you heard from um, Melvin and, and, and Peebles and others. And kind of, uh, as you put it, embracing the inconsistencies. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if there, you could talk more about some of the tension between that and the notion of, of doing good history, what that means, mm -hmm. um, and kind of the way that you thought about uh, 
sort of the, the mythologies around Van Peebles and around this film. I mean, I think of in particular of two kind of mytho mythological kind of aspects of the film in particular. One is uh, the issue of the uh, explicit sex in the film is often treated as, well, this was part of his cleverness in getting this film made because mm -hmm. he could not, he had, his budget was so low, he couldn't afford union labor. And so by pretending it was a porn movie, he uh, was able to use non-union labor. And in a way, that's a way of sidestepping, actually thinking about the role of sexuality mm -hmm. in the film, mm -hmm. saying, oh, it's just an economic constraint, but it becomes a kind of mythology around the film. And another thing I thought of was, uh, pointing to the film as like the breakthrough black exploitation film, and other people might point to Shaft, uh, which like the same year, or they might say, "Well, okay, Superfly is a year later, but you know it shows the tremendous economic potential, not from box office necessarily, but from the soundtrack, remember the Curse Mayfield soundtrack." And so, like obviously, that's a kind of mythological mm -hmm. thing that circulates around the film. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's um, so I, sh I should say it's it's not like that we weren't fact checking. <laughs> it's that. And I didn't mean to apply that. No, 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 I know. I know. I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm partly saying that because this is what I mean. Like we were finding like different things. So, I mean, you, you'd see there'd be a thing that Melvin said. Or there'd be a thing that was written about somewhere. And then you know, like Alison Field, who um, is fluent in French, which is one of the reasons I thought it would also be great. She was like reading the press releases from the time. She's like, that's not what that says. That says that. Right? And so you just like those types of things. I mean, it didn't happen a lot, but but like that kind of thing happened. Um, um, for for me, what you know my, like there was a funny thing where um even when like writing about his early life it's like well his he wasn't born with the name melvin van peoples right right like i mean that was a you know so like are we talking are we not like did, how, how deep down this thing do we want to find out about like did he invent that in what year what was the purpose i, I think for me whenever there were these kind of little like these inconsistencies i think my question was always um like does this matter <laughs> like does does it does it matter like if he legally changed his added the van or not like does it give us anything like does it does is it significant right um and sometimes the answer would be like no <laughs> we just kind of we just kind of roll with it um but then there were other things like like what you mentioned like the thing of well, he put the sex in there to get around this, which for me, um, that was just getting into issues of intent, which I wasn't sure how we were ever, I, I didn't know that we could ever answer those. Um, um, and so for me, for, for things like that, because I was, I was actually really concerned about just kind of reiterating these things that I didn't think that I just kind of didn't think were true. Quite frankly, there were a couple of things like, I don't think that really happened, but, um, um, I, I made a distinction between what was accurate and what was true. So a thing for me could be sort of factually inaccurate, but still be true, right? So like, maybe it's not exactly accurate that the sex was in there for this reason, but it is true that it was really hard to get this done on a shoestring budget. And there were lots of like, you know, like kind of concessions that had to be made. Um, and so like with, with, with Michael Gillespie writing the essay for Sweetback, I mean, he, one of the things he does is he contextualizes this within like, yes, there's explicit, explicit sex, like 
audiences were going to see like films, they were going to see porn, like in, in the 70s, like porn had become mainstream, like he put that context in. Um, he also just kind of talked about the sex as like, as like it is there as opposed to sort of, um, uh, I think getting sort of too deep in the weeds about like the anxiety around the, the the sex scenes as opposed to just saying, and they're there and kind of moving on to, to what he thought was the more interesting thing to kind of write about in that essay. Thank you. Do we, now I see, a, I see a new cue in it. Uh, <laughs> I'm reading it. Okay, so first, uh, Trey Andrea Restworm uh, mm -hmm. asked a question and then said, oh, you covered it, you answered it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but then um, this person asked, when you think about Black film and media history, aesthetics, et cetera, and your goals for publicly engaged scholarship, what do you most want non-academic audiences to know about these areas of study? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I think, um, like for me, um, there's this tendency, I think, with um, kind of like the self-proclaimed cinephile crowd, um, you know, which I, I would say like that's Criterion's audience where they they want like author comment. I mean, that's my sense. Like they, they want the directors to say like, I did this and this is why, right? Um, that's not what we do in film studies. You know what I mean? We, we, we also, we, we don't ever fully believe directors like when they, when they say things. And we also think that sometimes <clears throat> what a director meant to do or what they were trying to do is not necessarily what resonated among audiences or how a thing functioned, you know? Um, that's the kind of thing I was trying, trying to bring in in terms of um, thinking, thinking about the context, right? Um, in terms of thinking about what's really interesting about um, Melvin Van Peoples' work beyond just what he, um, what he specifically said, right? So having like Lisa Thompson write the essay about Don't Play Us Cheap, where she talks about um, like black stage traditions and sort of like their, the, the, the significance of, of placing those on Broadway, right? And the kind of the relationship between like stage and film, um, you know, that's the type of thing that I thought was more interesting than like what happens in this play, um, which, um, which I think, would hopefully be something sort of new um, for for like kind of a general a general public and a, and a general audience. I just wanted to move it beyond like trivia, you know, like and just kind of like facts of the history um, of the making of the films. All right, who's next? <coughs> ah, Trushti. Hi, Raquel. Thank you so much for coming. This was lovely to hear your work. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the slide you put up about COVID's role in, in doing remote interviews and, and, and having working on Zoom. Like what were some of the challenges? Just speaking more to that because I think some of us also <coughs> have to deal with that in the last few years. So I'm like interject that Shrushti is one of our graduate students and she's writing her master's thesis on um, virtual production. Oh cool. Yeah I mean I, I so the way that it worked a criterion um they would like send if you if you film remotely they would they would send like a kit to your to your house um and you'd have to and then you'd have to like set up a time with a producer to like to set it up um so it wasn't just like going on it wasn't like just going on zoom and hitting record it was like setting up the camera and the this and the that um which like for, for me, because I live in New York and like, 
if I had had a house with like an extra room, that's fine. But like, I could never do a setup more than like 10 minutes before we got to start. Cause like, it's, it's in my bedroom. Like what, you know what I mean? What am I, what am I supposed to do? Um, for like finding like the right spot with the right, like the right acoustics and that it's quiet. And, um, you know, funny, like a funny thing, like remotely, um, like we, when we got ready to, to do, so you, you do all of that. You got to make sure everybody's plugged in and that in whatever's happening, the criterion sound and, you know, on, on their side, et cetera. And then like, we, we got, we got everything set up. We're about to shoot, um, like Nelson and Warrington and my, my phone started ringing and it was like Warrington. And he was, he was like, do you have the link? Like, I don't have the link for the, you know, it's like, it was like that type, like imagine like basic problems with like zoom, but like for something that like really matters. Um, and like your it's, it's bad if your sound goes out and, and things like that. So that was, it was just, just, it was just hard. Um, you know, there were other things, I mean, I don't consider this to be a problem at all, but like, um, um, like some stuff was on zoom. Um, Mario wanted to shoot like in person, which I thought makes, because aesthetically that's what he, like, this is, he's shooting this interview for his dad's box set. Like he's going to do it in person, which I, I, which I completely agree with. We are also in COVID, right? So like, there's just all kinds of, you know, um, stuff around that and who can be in the office and who's masked and around, you know, like just, just, just stuff. But the, the remote thing was always tricky because it's just like, you know, not everybody has the same, you know, level of like, there was a problem with every single remote thing that we did with like stuff, like with just something happening, you know, so. Do we have anyone else queued up? I, I have some more questions, but I don't want to dominate. Mm. I wonder if you um, could talk about uh, the the fact that Van Peebles, uh, what, like a lot of Criterion filmmakers are, only filmmakers, right? And you have mm -hmm. someone here who, you know, was a writer and who worked in a theater. And I even read, I'm grand, this from Wikipedia, right? But I heard that he was the editor for the very short-lived uh, French version of Mad Magazine. I don't know. If that's oh, I've heard that too. Yeah. But, you know, was that, was that an element about thinking about him holistically to actually look at him as like a filmmaker plus and putting mm -hmm. that in context and how, how, uh, how you did that on the on the set when uh, you know in a way that would I mean there obviously that would be of interest to cinephiles and people who were sort of there for the trivia but you wanted to go beyond that so I was wondering if you could you could talk a little bit about that yeah I mean I think um, you know like one of the things that was nice about some of the the people who um, contributed you know like Nelson Nelson George is a is a journalist and sorry he like got his start as a journalist but he's also like a filmmaker and he's a cultural critic but like he he's also like a music expert so like on his he could he could he could speak to um melvin's um his his composing work you know and melvin's band that he that that he had you know here here in new york lisa thompson could talk about kind of the history of black theater um you know and like i said like kind of the significance of of like this this as a as a play um um, you know, one of the things I liked that Ali kept drawing out was like, you, you all realize this man is like writing this movie in French. Like, do, do we, like, like he, he, he wrote this film in French and he wrote a novel in French and like that, you know, um, and that, that's kind of a big deal. Right. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, I, I think, um, I really was wanted to, to, to the extent that we could kind of bring out these, 
these different these these different things it's just so incredibly impressive but that also meant and and you know to a certain extent then like I don't want to say like downplaying the politics, but I felt like that was the that was the narrative that people already knew that he like has this, you know, this kind of like radical black politics, like it's just a part of all of his work. But that that meant that when I was talking uh, to Michael Gillespie about what he was going to write about, um, you know, it, we we talked about all the other things that he could talk about in Sweetback, right? And he could talk about national cinemas and he could talk about, you know, um, you know, like the, the the black arts movement that's happening in the 60s and the 70s and put it in that in, in that context um to um to give something sort of sort of different so yeah right thank you um, <laughs> sorry i keep coughing but andrew has raised his hand hey thank you again raquel this is great um let's see so you talked uh, a little bit about trying to avoid hero worship um i think the the word you use is hagiography hagiography mm -hmm. in one of your slides um, as an academic, you are, you know, you're already very well trained on, you can go to a subject, it might be somebody that you admire greatly, but you're, you're still coming with training of how to look at them, uh, with critical distance and, and you see them as complicated. Um, but what you were talking about was working with, um, interview subjects that, that are, that are being asked about someone who's been you know, seen as a kind of hero. Can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about that process of how do you draw out the critical mind from, from someone who doesn't necessarily have that mm -hmm. same academic training? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it, I think, um, was in thinking about the questions that, that, that you asked. I mean, and that, and that even got tricky because it's sort of like, you know, like, Nelson and Warrington know each other. So there was a limit to how much we could, like at some point they were just talking like, cause they're, cause they're buddies, you know? Um, but for me, a lot of it was about um, thinking about sort of like what questions you threw out there. I mean, El Elvis Mitchell, when he interviewed Mario and they know each other, like they go, they go like kind of like way back. Um, you know, like Elvis had his own like kind of things he wanted to talk about, but we also like provided him with Kate and I like came up with questions, you know? Um, and so like one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, was getting Mario to not just, not not because it's a bad thing, but I was really interested in like Mario as professional peer as well as son, right? And that's kind of what I think you sort of see towards the end. It's interesting too, because I, I mean, even he kind of goes from like, referring him as dad to Melvin, you know, and he kind of goes back and forth, which is a thing that I had noticed a couple of times that I thought was really, really fascinating. So like I had a question um, that I, you know, that I, that, that I asked, um, kind of passed along to Elvis, which is like, can you, can you talk, you know, Mario, can you talk about your dad, like from the lens of a, of a son, but also as the lens of a, of a filmmaker um, and, you know, kind of what you think about his, his, his work. So, um, so I felt like it was like that type of thing where, um, to the extent that you can kind of steer anything, it like it happens in that kind of pre-process, um, and and in the editing process, <laughs> like in in post-production too, you know, and figuring out what stays in and, and and what goes out. And I, you know, um, and because Kate and I were working together, um, um, you know, I wasn't in the editing booth when they when when she and the and, and the other folks were kind of like editing like the Mario Elvis um, conversation, but. 
she and I had talked about like, hey, I, this is kind of the balance I would like to strike. I really I, I like when Mario talks about like being on set with his dad and what and like, you know, and kind of their experiences sort of in the in the industry together and, you know, things like that. Um, and so that also sort of informs like when she goes in and is sort of editing and, and you know, putting together a, a 20 minute or whatever interview out of the hour and a half that they they sat and talked on um, how that how that kind of gets gets shaped. I mean, look, things even like um even the even the cover i mean there were you know emory douglas <clears throat> really renowned um um, artist um former black panther somebody who knew melvin like he he did the cover but there were four different there were four different cover options you know um and uh which which the team presented to mario you know when he came in and you know in in your head you kind of like like i want you to pick that one i want you to, you know because there you know there was another option that I thought looked a little like a little saintly sort of, you know, there was just something about the design that I thought was kind of not, I, I thought it was leading in the direction that, that, that isn't the one that I would have chosen, um, you know, um, but, um, you know, like uh, that, that, that's, that's part of it. You know, I think I can't remember how many options were originally presented to um, the team as like cover options, but I don't, you know, I don't think it's like everything got presented, got like the, the team made some decisions and then presented those as kind of final options. So there's like spaces here and there to play around. Thanks. I just got um, two text messages from Adam Hart, who is, is uh, in our, our, our exterior room, as it were. Um, he wrote the historical importance of MVP's work is clear, <laughs> but do you see his films as having made an aesthetic impact as well? Um, which is something you start you you referenced with the the uh, uh, that that great moment with the dolly. Um, mm -hmm. um, one of the amazing things about this box says is that it reinforces just how radical he could be in caps, which makes his financial success even more remarkable. But do you think his style persisted? And the second question, separate. Also, were there many scripts that he wrote that he didn't get to make unmade passions projects that that only exist in his archives? Yeah, I, um, that's a great, I mean, the first question is really, that, that's a, that's a great question. I don't even know, I don't know that I can answer, I can answer that. I mean, I think, um, I mean, the thing that's been most, that, that I think is the most obvious is like that he introduces a type of character and that definitely, I mean, people talk a lot about kind of, um, like, black exploitation uh, protagonists, like whether like um, it's priest and superfly or like John Shaft and Shaft, like whatever, like being these same kind of like, you know, me against the world type of characters that you saw um, with, with, um, with Sweetback. But I also think like, but beyond that, like even, even I always kind of reference like, like the first Rambo movie, um, what is it, like first blood, first strike, whatever it's called. Like, you know, like this idea of like Sylvester Stallone is this guy who's like, I just don't really want to be here. Like, I, I, you know, like this kind of reluctant, like, you know, action hero type. Um, I, I feel like that's a legacy of like something, um, like, like sweep back, you know, like just that, that, that idea of that character, um, aesthetically, um, I'd have to think, I, mean, I think it's a great question. I'd have to think about it. I'd have to think about it a little bit more. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I have to think about it. Well, I mean, I'd also say like, there's some, especially like in Watermelon Man, um, I think there's some interesting stuff with aesthetics. Like, I mean, I've, I've said that it it's like a riff on a, on a TV sitcom. Like it's all about kind of, to me, it's like about making whiteness really strange. Um, I think you see something like that in like, um, in like Get Out. I mean, I don't know if it's a direct result, but I mean, this is always how I link them in my head where like Get Out, like the scene of like torture and horror looks like, 
a 50 suburban rec room. You know, I think there's something really indelible about what he did in Watermelon Man of like making like the kind of quotidian uh, very strange and, 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 you know, sort of his use of like things that are a little surreal, um, you know, kind of the tonal, um, the, the tonal, they're not inconsistencies for him, but like they're jarring, right? Like the music like radically switches, like things don't quite line up. It, it makes me think a lot about like Terrence Nance um, and his like work, Random Acts of Flyness, like it was on HBO and kind of like, you know, kind of playing around with style like that. Um, and then what was, what was the second question? The question was, are there many scripts that he wrote that he did get oh. unmade passion projects that only exist in the archives? And, and a related question would be like, are there many people archives? You know, what? Well, I'm Listen, I'm sure. They, I mean, they're, they're, when when they were getting, I remember I, they were talking about getting the short films um, because they had to send them off to be, you know, like um, like remastered and stuff, and they were just like in his apartment. Do you, I mean, it was, it's like, they, like, that was the, the biggest shock to me was I, I just kind of assumed all this stuff would, was, was somewhere, but it was like, it's in his house. So, um, so it was this like, well, like Mario's going to go over and he's going to, you know, get the stuff. Um, but um, that's a lot, that's a much larger question of, of like his stuff and, where his papers going and, 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 and things like, cause I'm sure there are, I'm sure I, there, I'm sure there are all kinds of like, like gems and scripts and novels and things like that, that are, um, you know, that haven't, weren't, weren't developed into other projects. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are, I just, I just don't know what they are, but I'm sure I, there are. I have another archival question. I was really glad to see um, the black journal um, mm -hmm. piece was included. Now I'm really dying to see that extra. Oh, and Adam writes, thanks so much. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I was really, I'm really dying to see that extra. And I'm wondering uh, if the black journal, um, footage was used because it was in his apartment, you know, because he had easy or was it something that you tracked down? Were there different, uh, it's funny. You should ask that because, um, I'm going to drop it in the chat too. Um, cause I know it's up on YouTube. It's so it's funny. You should ask that because, um, that the only thing I, that he I had just in thought, his hand, well, that sorry. Um, what I really, really wanted but there was no way to do it was I really wanted to figure out a way to reprint the um, Lerone Bennett, like the, the Ebony editor wrote this like just scathing critique of the film. Um, and then Huey Newton for the Black Panther newsletter wrote this like glowing review. And it's, they're so iconic pieces, but there was no possible way. And I was like, can we reprint them? And they're like, no, like people don't want like pages and pages of things to read. So like, there was no way to do it. Um, Kate found like the Black Journal episode and thought it was great because it's it's like another writer from Ebony doing the kind of like politics respectability thing. And then, you know, some other folks who have other things to say. What was interesting is that I thought this was, and I'll just drop it in the in the chat for folks. Um, I thought this was the perfect, like, this is perfect, right? Like this gives us a sense of like how controversial the film was even at its time. It addresses like the sex, it addre addresses like the 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 child, the child sex, like. And um, initially, um, like we heard that they that um, we like there was a conversation and um, it turned out that like Melvin had been well aware of this Black Journal episode. He didn't he didn't he didn't like it when it aired. And there, you know, like there were some feelings around it. And so it was it was, you know, and those are the kind of interesting things that you um, that, that you, you find out that like, no, that wasn't in his apartment because, you know, um, 
he, you know, I don't, and he, but the thing is he, he does in the, in the video, he does a really amazing job of like answering those critiques and like, this is, and this is what I'm doing. And like, this is an unfair critique, you know, like it's, he comes across so, so well, but I, I, I got the sense that, um, that it, that like, it, it was, a, it was a thing that um, he, he hadn't liked. Um, and so then there, we had a, like, there was a conversation about, well, should it be on there? Should it not be on there? You know? Um, but it, it, at the end, it just felt like the kind of the best way to um, kind of address um, some of the things that we knew needed to be addressed. So, but a lot of it is just, I'm sorry, just also Criterion has just an amazing team. I mean, they have, it's like the producer, but they have like, you know, like their, their, their staff and their, and, and the researchers and folks were just kind of like pulling stuff and digging, digging things up. Um, like an episode of a French television show. Like, I don't know where they're finding that. I would have never found that, but you know, um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm guessing the French TV show was something much more, um, let's say mainstream as it were TV yeah. as opposed to the public affairs, black programming right. that is, you know, yep. um, not national and right. exactly. local. And so <clears throat> mm-hmm. that's, that's a whole separate question about like auteurs in mm-hmm. American auteurs in Europe. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, any, uh, I'm not sure. Oh, Antieco University, UMass Amherst, uh, any links between the criterion project and the long awaited selection uh, belated canonization of sweep back by the National Registry slash Library of Congress in 2020? Uh, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I mean, it's possible, but not that uh, I that it didn't get mentioned when I was um, when I was working on it. So I don't not not that I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah. that's that is interesting, though. Like, yeah, yeah. And wonders. Um, well, I think I think we will stop. Well, I don't see any other hands up. We're at six twenty six. Um, uh, I wanted to just uh, thank you very much and offer a round of applause, even though most of us are muted. But thank you so much for, for sharing this with us. And um, also, before we go, I will just remind everyone, and we got some thank yous uh, in the in the Q and A area too. Uh, that next week we're on uh, spring break, right? No colloquium. Uh, but after that, we will have Jens Pullman, who is a visiting scholar at MIT right now. And his talk is uh, entitled Platform Regulation in the Digital Public Sphere Comparing the Discrimination in the United States. Uh, so that will be a very interesting one right after uh, spring break. And that will be um, like this one, uh, virtual only. So I hope to see many of you there. And a huge thank you again to Raquel for joining us today. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me um, and giving me the opportunity to, to, to chat about it's It's weird. I'll just say like, it's, it's weird because um, um, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's like, you do all this work on it. I also like, I'm not on this box that any, like, I'm not like, besides like the writing, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm not in the interview segments or things like that. It's, it's such a different type of um, like, work where most of the labor if, is like, is sort of invisible. You know what I mean? Um, even though like, I, I know like how much work <laughs> went, in, went into, into some of this stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little strange, but also really nice to have an opportunity um, to kind of reflect back on, on all of it. Um, and um, yeah, and, and kind of, and, and chat about it. Um, which, so thank you. Thank you for that um, as well. Yeah.